So when I was a kid, one of my favorite holidays was Easter. Uh, and it wasn't just the Easter candy. It wasn't just the fact that Easter kind of signaled the beginning of spring. Uh, it was everything about Easter Sunday itself that I absolutely loved. I loved everything about the youth group would come in early and we'd make this huge breakfast. And while we were preparing that breakfast, they would do a sunrise service. Right? It was just so much fun. I mean, it was early, 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 like maybe 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. and it was great. And then after that, we'd have this feast. It was literally a breakfast feast. And I look forward to it all year long, at least in part because it only happened once a year. We had sunrise service once a year. We had a big old breakfast feast once a year. We dressed in fancy clothes that we wore once a year, right? The, the Easter dress, the Easter hat, the Easter suit. We had flowers that came out once a year. We sang songs that we only sang once a year. And we talked about resurrection. And we pretty much did that once a year, too, and then we would put away the Easter decorations, the eggs, the lilies, the resurrection story. We'd put all that sort of on a shelf so we could bring it out next spring to talk about resurrection again. I mean, maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but I don't think we really ever talked about resurrection except at Easter. I mean, we talked about rapture, as I covered a couple of sermons ago, but that was mostly just to like scare us into praying a prayer. It had nothing to do with sort of this current hope that we have in, in, in resurrection. We didn't, we didn't talk about resurrection outside of an event that happened to Jesus in the distant past or an event that might happen to believers in the distant future, but it really had no bearing on our now, no bearing on our present. And I don't think my church is alone in that. I think many churches can go all year long without talking about the resurrection as anything more than an event in the distant past, or they get caught up fighting about the end times and the rapture and the premillennial and the postmillennial and, and all this minutiae of doctrine, and either way, they miss the hope. They miss the relevance. They, they, they miss the now, right? One of the things I love about ECC is that we do observe the church calendar and... <laughs> We talk about the Holy Spirit outside of Pentecost. We talk about Christ's incarnation outside of Advent. And we talk about resurrection beyond just Easter Sunday morning. Well, today we're continuing in the series that we've been in, Dear Suburban Church. Look at this first century letter written by the Apostle Paul to this fledgling new church in Corinth, made up largely of Gentiles. And as we've talked about, it's sort of a disciplinary letter. He goes topic by topic through behavior and beliefs that he's seeing in them that aren't in line with Christ. Paul addresses the infighting and the division. He addresses their sexuality. He addresses some of them that are hyper-legalistic while others seem to approve everything. Like, and the stuff that even their wicked cultures frowned upon. <laughs> and they accepted it. It's a very comprehensive list. In fact, it's one of the most comprehensive lists of topics, of issues in the New Testament. And now we're getting really close to the end of this letter. We're getting very close to the end of the series. It's, it, it, Paul's been sort of building up to this. These next couple of weeks, these next couple of chapters are sort of like, hey, before I go, one more thing I need to make sure you understand. One more thing you need to know. I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we, we would encourage you to go to Bible.com. It has some great resources, a free Bible you can download to your phone. I use Bible Gateway daily. It's an amazing, amazing resource. You can get virtually every uh, translation and version of the Bible that you can imagine. So... 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. It is the good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. 
He says, let, let me remind you of the good news that I preached to you before. Many, many translations say the gospel that I preached to you before, because as many of you know, gospel simply means the good news that I preached. And Paul's saying, remember all the way back to the beginning, that message that I brought, that message that you were so excited about, that you embraced the good news that saves you, the, the gospel that will save you, if you hold fast to that truth. That last phrase, believe something that was never true in the first place. According to my NLT study Bible, which is an amazing tool, that, that phrase could also be translated to mean this, unless you never believed it in the first place. I think Paul's saying, maybe you never really believed it. Maybe you did. I don't know. But either way, I'm not seeing it evidenced in your lives. I'm not seeing it evidenced in your relationship. So I want to remind you what that message is. And so he does. What is that good news, that gospel? Next verse. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. So this is it. I mean, the whole book is built to this. He's saying, this is the most important thing. Before I end my letter to you, I want to remind you of the core of what all of this means. And here it is. Next verse. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he was seen by James and later by all of the apostles. So for Paul, what's at the core of the, the good news, the core of the gospel? Well, I think there, there are four different things that he says about the gospel. First, Christ died for our sins. That's central. But just as central as he was raised from the dead, resurrected on the third day. We're familiar with those two. But number three, all of that was prophesied by Scripture long before Jesus was born. Time and time again, he said, just as Scripture said, just as predicted, this happened. And then finally, he was seen by a whole lot of people who could attest to the veracity of this claim. At the very core of this gospel, of this good news, is Christ's atoning, sin-breaking death and his death-breaking resurrection. But even more than that, it, it's proven as true because it was prophesied in advance and witnessed to firsthand afterwards. At the core of the gospel, the good news is proof. It sounds strange to say it, but, but there's a place to write this in your notes. Christ's resurrection is physical proof of the defeat of death, but also sin. And I think that's a gift, not only for us now, but, but for them back in this era, in this time, right? Some of these new believers in this church in Corinth had come, they were Gentiles. They had come from a Greek way of thinking. And while the idea of resurrection wouldn't have been new to a Jewish audience, they were very familiar with the idea of the day of the Lord, when there would be the resurrection of the dead. To a Greek mind, to a Greek scholar, that was a very foreign concept. They believed very much in the separation of the soul and the body. What you did with your body didn't really matter. It was the soul that mattered. When you died, your body simply rotted and your soul, sort of bodiless, you know, spent eternity in the afterlife. By giving us a physical resurrection that had been prophesied, that was then seen by literally hundreds of people, God is giving them and us a gift. If this was a soul somewhere in the afterlife, how do you, how do you prove that? How do you see that? How do you experience that? He said, here's, here's my proof and witnesses to bear that proof. So it's true as what was prophesied and seen by the whole lot of people, reputable people. Next verse. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. For I am least 
of all the apostles. In fact, I'm not even worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted God's church. For those of you who don't know, and I'm sure many do, Paul had earlier in his life, earlier in his career, made it his mission to persecute the followers of Christ. He was enemy number one, and he made life hell for Christians. And yet God, in his infinite grace, chose to choose, chose to choose Paul to be a spokesperson, a model of his ridiculous extended grace. Verse 10, but whatever I am now, it's all because of what God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results. For I've worked harder than any of the other apostles. Yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. It sounds like kind of a weird flex, right? <laughs> like, I worked harder than any of the other apostles. <laughs> but what's the context? He's just said, I, I don't deserve to even be called an apostle. I did things that were an abomination to God. I don't deserve any of this because of the horrible things I've done, but God has lavished his grace on me anyway. And in response, I've worked hard in gratitude, in awe, in the hope that others might experience that life-changing, chain-breaking, eye-opening grace. That others might experience the second chance that I've been given. Paul's not working to earn grace. Paul's working in response to the grace that he's experienced. And that invitation, that, that extension of the special favor, this grace, is extended to each of us, each of us, no matter what we've done. God wants to make us, in the same way that he made Paul, an example of his lavish love and his boundless grace. Say yes to that invitation. See, I think that's the key understanding to this whole book. The good news of what Christ has done was the lens through which Paul sees every other topic in this letter, from lawsuits to sex lives to Christian freedom to temple worship. All of it is seen through the lens of what Christ had done. And then Paul makes that explicit. Next verse, verse 11. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach, for we all preach the same message that you've already believed. This is all the way back to the opening chapter, right? Where they're dividing over who's going to follow this, who's going to follow this, and then fighting over intellectual blah, blah, blah. And he's like, it doesn't matter. What matters is the message. What matters is the hope. What matters is the grace. Everything that Paul says in this, in this book about how we're to act in this passage is in response to what God has done. He sees our behavior, our ethic, two, three ways. First, Paul sees our behavior as responsive. The way that we behave isn't primarily to keep the law. Paul is not interested in keeping the law. Rather, it's a response to what God has done in Christ. In response to the overwhelming, undeserved grace of God. But Mindy pointed out to me, Mindy Lawrence, she said, but it's also temporal and material. This is not just some esoteric, philosophical thing like head knowledge. If this is real this impacts our real lives right now. Our bodies are temporal. Our bodies are material. We are bound to time. And our actions in this time and in this material has real impact on those around us. And it's not just for now. Paul later on will say, this hope is just for now. We're more pitied. Than, we should be more pitied than anyone. It's future. We have been saved. We're being saved and we will be saved. There's a commentary that I, I've mentioned now a couple of times, the NLT Study Bible, and it says these words. I love it. Paul's appeal for faithfulness is not that they should keep the law of Moses, but that they should understand what it means to be married to Christ and to be the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit. 
When he addresses the freedom of believers to eat meat sacrificed to pagan idols, he avoids formulating rules, asserting their liberty to Christ, and Christ eat anything. And I love this. He emphasizes, however, that the effect of one's action on others is always more important than one's own rights. So believers should readily abstain from actions that would be detrimental to others. It's beautiful. He's not trying to recreate the law. He's not even trying to appeal to the law. The law meant nothing to this Gentile audience. He's saying in response to what Christ has done, this is what Christ living looks like. This is what resurrection living looks like. And then Paul goes on to talk more about resurrection than anywhere else he does in the New Testament. Verse 12. But tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection from the dead? For if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we've said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are to be more pitied than anyone in the world. So Paul is saying the impact that this truth has impacts your life now. It gives you hope now, but not just hope now. Paul is so here to remind them that this truth of the resurrection, because the resurrection is the core of the gospel. Without the resurrection, Christ's death was meaningless. Without the resurrection, there is no good news. Without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Without the resurrection, none of what we take from the Bible, any of it, has any real merit. The Bible is just reduced to another religion, another ethical system. And friends, history is filled with religion and ethical systems, many of which are way easier than Christianity. (laughs) Many of which don't call you to the kind of self-sacrifice that Christianity is going to call you to. Most of which don't call you to die to yourself. If this is just an ethical system, choose an easier one. History is filled with fairy tales of saviors, but fairy tales aren't good news. And false hope is not hope at all. So Paul says this, next verse. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as the earth came, a death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, through Christ. Christ has been raised as the first fruits of the great harvest, as evidence of proof that his claims are true, that the predictions are true, but there's more. Notice that second part of the verse. Now the resurrection from the dead has begun to another man. That's good news. There's a place to write this in your notes. Resurrection has already begun. This isn't some distant future thing that, that we think might happen. It has already begun. And this isn't a one-off. This is just a first one. Paul then, as he has throughout the book, appeals to their logic, their common sense. He keeps it very practical. Skipping down to verse 29. If the dead will not be raised, what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday raise again? Rise again. Okay, so that's weird, (laughs) right? I mean, did you hear what I said? Apparently, there were people who were being baptized on behalf of those people who had already died. People being baptized for dead people. (laughs) 
right? I don't think I've been to that baptism service. Do we do those at ECC? <laughs> no. And the scholars really don't have any consensus about what that means. I mean, they all agree that's weird. Um, but this is the only time it's ever referenced in the New Testament. We don't really know what it means, but apparently his audience did. Paul calls this out confident they would have understood what he was talking about, right? And, and he neither endorses it nor condemns it. He's simply saying, why would you even do it if you don't believe there's resurrection? And then he goes on to something that makes a lot more sense to us, language we can perhaps more easily understand. He goes on with this. And why should we ourselves risk our lives hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, that I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what Christ Jesus our Lord has done in you. Paul is literally saying, would I, would these other apostles risk our lives on a daily basis for something that we knew was a lie? Next verse. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those people of Ephesus, if there be no resurrection from the dead? Now, here I think it's important to point out, Paul is almost certainly not talking about he himself fighting wild beasts. In in ancient literature like this, it was very common to refer to people who were were overtly wicked or evil people as wild beasts. And he alludes to that, these these, these people of Ephesus. But at the same time, we don't know for sure. As As many of you do know, Christians were at that time being forced to fight literal wild beasts, to fight gladiators, to, to die for the entertainment of the people of Rome, for the people of the region. And he's saying, if, if, would they really, they really be willing to die for what they knew was a lie? And if they would, I mean, if they would die for a lie, if there's nothing else, then how bleak is that? Paul refers to a common expression of the day, quoting a Greek poet, Menander, from about 300 B.C. And if there is no resurrection, let's feast and drink, for tomorrow we die. So he says, no, don't, don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Instead, Paul says, no, there's so much more. Think carefully about what is right and stop sinning. For your, To your shame, I say that some of you don't know God at all. And there it is. That's the brass tacks. That's the thing he said at the very beginning of the chapter. Paul's looking at their behavior. He's looking at their lack of love, their division, their immorality, their lack of belief. And he's saying, I'm not sure you ever really believed the good news. Or you, you believe some other version of the good news. I'm not sure really, you really know the God at all. But then Paul goes on to promise that all who hold firmly to that gospel, to the good news, will also be resurrected. Verse 43, our bodies are buried in brokenness, but they'll be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they'll be raised in strength. They are buried as natural human bodies, but they'll be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are also spiritual bodies. This is one of many, many, many times in this book where Paul talks about the body, right? He uses the analogy of the body to talk about the people of God, the church. He talks about if the body is the the temple of the Holy Spirit, why would you marry that body to a prostitute? To an audience that largely didn't see the body of any value, he talks about the body all the time. And here, at least in part, I think he's saying, yes, our bodies are broken. Even the spiritual bodies, even the body of Christ that we are is broken. It's not perfect because it is both incarnational and institutional. But even that broken body will be resurrected and be made new. Even our spiritual ecclesial church bodies are broken, but they will be raised up in strength. It matters what you do with your body because we are material, temporal, now and future. Verse 53, 
For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, the scripture will be fulfilled. He started off by saying, just as scripture said, just as scripture said. He's saying it will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, without the resurrection, sin still results in death. And all we have is the law. But in the same way that Christ's resurrection was physical proof that Scripture was sound, so we could trust that Scripture will be fulfilled in us. In light of that, then, Paul says these words. So, in light of that, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Paul says, as you work through these challenges, as you try to now address these issues within your community, Keep your eye on that good news, on that hope. Keep your eye on what Christ did and then bring that sort of resurrection power into these situations. Hold tightly to the gospel, the good news. Hold firmly to the hope of resurrection. Hold tightly to this truth. And not just intellectually, but in light of the ridiculous grace that God's extending, Paul says, be firm and immovable. Say yes to Jesus' extension of this amazing grace. Say yes to the kind of community that he's calling us to place to write down one last fill-in. That future hope can empower our practical now. There's a Chris Tomlin song that came out a couple years ago called Resurrection Power. I'm sure many of you have heard it. But it talks about, I now have that power. And that's not just him being poetic. That's him literally referencing the multiple times that throughout the New Testament, Paul in these letters talks about that same power that raised Christ from the dead is now at work in us is literally empowering the work that we are doing. Imagine that. What would resurrection power look like in our community when we face division? In our denomination, as we try to navigate through some really difficult things, as, as Chris has talked about over the last couple of weeks. What would it look like in understanding of sexuality in marriage, sexuality outside of marriage? How would it form how, how we engage in conflict with ourselves and with the community around us as we see these threats that seem to be so eminent for us as a culture as Christians? What if we weren't powered by our intellect, but we were powered by the resurrection power at work in us? Can you even imagine? In the face of adversity, we could praise. We sing those words, but is it true? Have you ever known someone like that? I have. Or more accurately, more accurately, my dad did. My dad and mom, in the late 60s, my, my dad went to flight school uh, to become a missionary pilot. And one of his classmates is a guy that I've heard about for the last 50 years. His name was Dan Melke. Uh, and these guys became fast friends. I mean, just best friends. And there were so, so many stories of shenanigans, which means there are lots of stories of shenanigans I haven't heard. I'm quite certain, right? 
And these guys are just peas in a pod. They could build anything. They could do any adventure. And so they, they went to school in, at Moody, and then they went down to Elizabethton, Tennessee, where these two couples moved into the married student housing and lived in this tiny little house while they did the rest of their flight training. They then moved to Mexico, where they went to jungle camp together. I think we have some pictures of Dan. Have they shown them yet? Pictures of Dan. That's Dan and Glenda Melky. Pictures of them in jungle camp. As they, they had to literally survive. I mean, it's like a survivor show now. This is what jungle camp was for missionary training. And they went through this together. They, they faced all these challenges together. My mom and dad and, and Dan and, and Glenda. And they have so many different stories to tell. And after they completed that training, they went their separate ways. My parents to Cameron, West Africa. And Dan and Glenda Melky to Papua New Guinea to be pilots. And Dan and Glenda faced some very, very big challenges. Dan developed what has been called breakthrough malaria. No matter what he took, he couldn't prevent himself from getting malaria. And when he got it, they couldn't treat it. It just ravaged his body. He developed hepatitis. He developed what's called tropical sprue. Uh, they were treating him with leprosy medicine because his body was just being ravaged by this. And they said, Dan, there's no way you can stay in this country. The malaria is literally killing you. And so they moved to Alaska where there are mosquitoes, but there's no malaria. And they were there for about 18 years serving uh, with the indigenous people, with the First Nation people there. And their son was a senior in high school. He said, I've got one year of high school left and I don't own any clothes that have buttons on them. Can I move back to my culture for one year? <laughs> so they moved to Oregon and Dan's health continued to deteriorate. Slowly he was losing his, his faculties, his body. And then about a decade ago, uh, he developed what, what seemed at the time to be uh, ALS, because he was losing his mobility, he was losing his balance, his body was just failing him. And they did all these tests, they couldn't figure out what it was. It was some sort of mystery sickness that had been caused by these early sicknesses in his time of mission. And yet through all of that, he ministered. Through all of that, he evangelized. Through all of that, he taught. He worked for youth in Christ. He pastored a church. Through all of that, he couldn't help but tell the people around him about this Jesus. A couple of years ago, Dan and Glenda came and visited ECC on a Sunday morning. And at that point, he was in a wheelchair. He had lost most of his ability to speak. He was very, very reduced. And at the end of the service, we sang a song called Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. And Glenda came running up after the service and said, what is that song? That has been our life for the last five years. What is that song? She said, right to the very end of his life, yes, there were moments where Dan, like the, apostle, like the uh, prophet Elijah asked, why me? Why me? Sat at the juniper bush and said, God, why? I've been so faithful. But most of the time, he prays in the midst of the storm. She likes to tell a story that toward the end of his life, his speech was so slurred that you almost couldn't understand him, except when he talked about Jesus. And then suddenly you could understand every word out of his mouth. And the very last conversation he had was with a hospice nurse. She came in. She wasn't a believer. She was a young woman. She said, are you a praying man? And Dan said that he was. And she said, I, I'm not a praying person. I'm not good enough to pray. I asked my grandma to pray for me, but I'm not good enough to pray. And Dan said, I'm not good enough to pray. Your grandma's not good enough to pray. Nobody's good enough to pray. That's, that's the story. That's the good news. And that was the very last conversation he had in this world. I had the privilege uh, of attending virtually his sermon or his, uh, his funeral. 
And at the funeral, after hearing all these stories from these men and women that he'd impacted, hearing the stories from his children, Stephen, his son, said this, my dad wasn't a perfect man, but he knew the perfect man, and he wanted to introduce everyone to that perfect man. I want to read these words to you, and they're a little bit long. I want to read these words to you, and then we're going to sing them together. Imagine these words sung, because these are the words that Dan chose to have as the very final words at his funeral. And I sat there in my kitchen and wept. What gift of grace is Jesus, my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to his. Oh, how strange and divine I could sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I'm not forsaken. For by my side, the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley, he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future's sure, the price has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. To this I hold. My sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I am free. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. With every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me. Until I stand with joy before his throne. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but the Christ in me. To this I hold, my hope was only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but the Christ in me. I talked to Glenda the other day. She said that, yes, Dan had his Elijah moments, his why me God moments. But when he lived in this yet not I moment, that's when he and the people around him got to experience that resurrection power in the midst of a dying world. Put this song in your playlist. Be reminded. This song was on Dan's daily playlist. It was on my dad's daily playlist. And together they daily held on to that hope, to that good news. Like I said, the service ended with these words. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. To this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Friends, that is our living hope. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this word that is so mysterious, that is so upside down, that, that seems so counterintuitive. Help us to understand, but, but not just intellectually, the power that is in this resurrection that so few of us experience because so few of us address this. So few of us talk about this. We hear this story so infrequently. And yet, according to your word, according to Paul, it is at the very core of the good news we're invited to not only bring to others, but to experience in our own lives. God, allow us, like Dan, like Paul, like so many have gone before us to say, to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. We ask in the name of, in the name of Jesus. Amen.